Coming to you live from my parents' house, we got episode 21 of the Changavi Show. Those of you that are new, I am Anuj Changavi, the man, the myth, the legend. But my title today is Justice Changavi. If you're on the YouTube edition, you can see that. You'll see why later because we're talking about some real interesting topics here. Um, it is late. I always start this show later. I'm always like, I'm going to start the Changabi, like I'm going to start recording like at, you know, 9 p.m. And then it gets late and then it gets late and then like stuff comes up and then it's like, okay, I'm going to do that real quick. And then by the time I start recording, it's like 1140 at night. So this is after show hours, but we're recording a Changabi show, you know, so just pretend like it's still, you know, going to be a Changabi show type of vibe. Uh, very educated, I hope. And uh and much more uh, put together because I've been working on the research for this for a couple days now. So let's get into it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um. How am I doing? I kind of already started this. Uh, how is Anuj doing? Honestly, dude, 2022 has started out really freaking good. I cannot complain about the way that 2022 has started so far. It has been a really good start to the year. I know I've done like four shows uh, so far um, talking about various things. The quarter has not been bad. It's been like four weeks so far. Nothing crazy has gone on in those four weeks exquisite i think that's the best way honestly i could describe it been watching some really good sports been uh hanging out with some cool people um you know working on the stuff that i love to work on and just living my life i'm also drinking way too much great bear uh which is the coffee shop that i tried to get to sponsor me but you know they said never say never so i'll never say never but great bear where you at homies if you're listening to this great bear come on come on give your boy a sponsorship please 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 I can't spend more money on bougie lattes. I, I promised myself, I was like, I'm Great Bear striking. I'm Great Bear striking for like two weeks just because I cannot afford it. Um, and I'm living in my parents' house, Great Bear. So like, come on, if you can plug me with that coffee check, like that would be, that would be much appreciated. If you haven't checked out uh, Great Bear Coffee, go check them out. You can look them up online. They're in the Bay Area, South Bay. Go check them out. But honestly, this year has been really good to me. I've been blessed and it's been it's been dope. Honestly, like there's nothing more I can say. Like I've I've really been living my life and I've felt like I've hit my stride so far here in January. Um also just one quick disclaimer. This isn't anything big in particular or anything, but I'm trying to like I'm doing like little things to experiment with the podcast. So if you notice that like the camera angles change, the like camera angles change periodically through the episodes or through the various content I'm recording or like the microphone angle or, you know, whatever it is, or like transitions between topics. Like just know that like, this is all very planned. I'm trying new things out, trying to make sure that, you know, I'm getting better at the craft, at the little things, the little details as we go along here. So nothing crazy with the format. I, I don't really intend on changing that. Although we don't have a music topic this week because it has been a fucking a light week for music. I also did a very heavy music episode last week. So if you want to check out music topics, go check out last week where I talk about Stacey Ryan and how she's changing the music industry and she may not even know it. But besides that, we're not, you know, I'm I'm kind of like doing more topics like that are just trending right now that are relatable uh, rather than, you know, topics that maybe I want to talk about because I'm not trying to be egotistical. I gotta, I gotta appease the consumer too. You know, this is cap. This is a capitalistic society we live in. If Squid Games taught us anything, you know, you got to appease the people as well. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and yeah, I'm doing exquisite. I think that's just the best way to put it. It's been good vibes out here in Changabi Land. So thought I would share that with you. But speaking of the good vibes, can we talk a little bit more about good vibes? It's been more. It's been way better vibes than what I've been feeling in the NFL recently because the NFL divisional weekend just took place. Uh, just uh, actually didn't just take place. It's Wednesday. It was like four days ago. It ended. Uh, but Saturday and Sunday were filled with the NFL divisional playoff round football games. So it was uh, four games this weekend that took place two on Saturday, two on Sunday. And may I just say every single game delivered. Every single game. If you are an avid consumer of the NFL or someone who is into sports, like you can admit to me that yes, the NFL delivered and the product absolutely just made everyone super happy. Um, 
All four games came down to the final minutes, if not overtime. Uh, Three of the four games actually ended in a last-second field goal, the last game ending in an overtime drive. The product of the NFL has not been higher, and the NFL Divisional Weekend is providing that. I'm honestly, honestly, like I'm ready to go on the record and say this. That was the best weekend of football I've seen in my lifetime. And all my friends have heard it because the ones I've talked about with about this weekend with, like I've repeated that statement over and over. It was the best weekend of football I've probably ever seen. Um, some of the best games I've ever seen just go back to back to back to back. Like it was, it was very, very good. And I'm just not like, maybe <laughs> if like, I wouldn't be able to put this in as good a perspective if the Niners hadn't won, but the Niners won. So it made divisional weekend even sweeter. Um, but, but I feel like every game seemed to be like upping the stakes, right? Like you kind of like Saturday morning started out with uh, Cincinnati and Tennessee and Cincinnati, like Joe, Burr, Joe Shiesty, the baller, the baller. I love Joe Burrow. Oh my God. He's been like the most lovable character of these playoffs in my opinion. Um, but he played really well, beat the Tennessee Titans, the number one seed in the AFC on a last second field goal drive. Um, after Ryan Tannehill threw his third pick of the day, like, and then like, that was like the base that was like, okay, like that's how divisional weekend's going to start. I was like, that might be the best weekend. That might be the best game of the weekend. Like shit. What if the rest of their bloods, then you have Niners Packers right afterwards. And that's like a gritty game in the cold weather Lambeau field, like negative two degrees, just, you know, cold weather football, no offense can get it going. Both defenses are balling out. And then last second, Robbie Gold walk-off field goal in the snow at Lambeau Field. Like, like okay, whoa, whoa, that was a great game too. Like, are we going to get better games on Sunday? And then you have Tampa versus L.A., and it's looking like, you know, this is going to be the worst game of the weekend. L.A. had a huge lead. They were kind of putting it on Tampa. That Brady does Brady things, comes all the way back, ties the, ties the game up. And then Matthew Stafford has a go-ahead field goal drive after, you know, he sees an opening in the defense and shoves a long one down to Cooper Cup. Uh, and they went on a last-second field goal. And then you have the game of the weekend, which was Chiefs-Bills, Josh Allen versus Patrick Mahomes. Josh Allen probably playing as close to a perfect game that a quarterback could play uh, while also losing. And then Patrick Mahomes obviously pulling out the win um, in overtime there in Arrowhead. Uh, It was just great games, just one game on top of the other. It felt like the level of football was at an extremely high level. You had upsets, you had road teams win, and then, you know, you had the favorite Kansas City Chiefs also pull it out as well. Um, It was... I feel like the NFL in terms of like a monetary standpoint is just chilling. They're they're in a great place. Like the NFL is savoring over the amount of money. They're, they're, they're just licking their chops at the amount of money they're making uh, with all the views, with all the uh, everything that's just coming to them. Like it's been great. And it's not only just this divisional weekend. I feel like this divisional weekend has kind of represented what this season has been. This season in general has been a very good season. I think it's I think it it definitely hits a little different because it's that first season right off of COVID uh or like the majority of the pandemic and like way more fans are back allowed in the stands and football is kind of more or the NFL at least is way more accessible to all fans and all of these things. Um you know, it's just it's super cool. Like it's just been a really good season because, and also like there hasn't even like, if you look at the number one seeds, it was AFC in the AFC is Tennessee and the NFC is green Bay, two teams that like really weren't clear favorites to win the super bowl. Um, there isn't a clear favorite to win the super bowl. People were saying that the Patriots could make a run all the way to the bull. People were saying that even potentially, you know, people, the, the Niners were the sixth seed and now they're all the way at the NFC championship. Like, you know, the, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like I think I thought the Rams, the Cardinals, the Niners, you know, the Cowboys, if they were uh, maybe even the Cowboys, if they had beaten us, could have made a run. Like everybody is like it, it just feels like a very open horse race right now to take a Super Bowl. And even if these even in the NFC and the AFC championship this year, you have the Niners and the Rams, and you have the Cincinnati Bengals versus the Kansas City Chiefs. For all four teams have a very valid case as to why they could make the Super Bowl and then win the Super Bowl. So it's just a very open-ended season, and I like that. I like the parity within the NFL right now that anybody can really make a run, which is cool. Um, 
the Niners are in the NFC Championship. That's like the storyline that, in my opinion, and like when me just gets lost in this whole crazy thing, because I'm just like, wow, the NFL is at such a high level. Holy shit, my team's still in it. So it's pretty cool. It feels great as a Niners fan, like as someone who is very critical of the team earlier on in the season, like it's awesome to see them like have really great playoff success. I really have no idea how they're in the NFC championship game. This is kind of like beyond my wildest dreams when we were at three and five. Like I didn't even suspect that we would make the playoffs, let alone like be in this position that we're in. So that's pretty cool. Um, and like I said, like the NFL is just loving the business that they're doing. Like Niners Packers, uh, which was a game that took place this weekend, did 21% better than any other divisional game last year. Right, which is crazy. Last year you had the same you had four divisional games, and the Niners Packers had more viewers by about 21% than any single one of those divisional games had. I don't know about the other divisional games within this weekend, but I'm pretty sure like a rating over rating, like this divisional weekend just like blew the NFL out of the water. Like Chiefs Bills did crazy ratings during prime time and all of that stuff as well. Um, people are calling the Bills Chiefs game this past weekend like the greatest football game of all time. Um, I was working during the Bills Chiefs game, shout out, but honestly, like I, I was able to catch like most of the big plays and stuff, which was pretty cool. Um, but there's something about this, dude, there's something about the NFL playoffs. That's just like on another level. In my opinion, I think hoops, like I think in the NBA, like the playoffs are on another level in that, like, it's just a series and you get to know every opponent so, so well, and it's intense in its own way. But the NFL is just like you're you're when you win and you move on, you lose, pack it up, go back home, right? So it's like it has that thrill to it where it's there's no there's no game two of the series. It's NFC championship. You win this game, you go to the Super Bowl, you win this next game, you advance further in the playoffs, you lose, you're out of here. And you're gonna have to deal with all the pressing questions that the NFL press and national media and everybody is gonna talk about you, right? So like it's just, it's thrilling on that level. And then it's like a one game and you're out type thing. And I feel like the Niners have been playing that like one game and you're out type thing for like seven weeks now. So it's put my heart on a freaking ventilator at this point. Um, and it seems like most people I know around here in the Bay Area really want to jump in on this. They're feeling hella FOMO. You know, they were like at three and five, these are the same people who are like, oh, the Niners suck. They're going to lose. They're going to lose. Like, stop. And I'm like, just, you know, I mean, I, I can't say that I wasn't in that crowd as well, but I was, you know, I'd still wear my jersey around. I'd still rep my team. I was like, we're three and five, but fuck it. Trey Lance is going to probably play soon. Obviously, it didn't end up happening. We obviously ended up winning a bunch of games. Uh, we've won nine of our last 11, which is freaking crazy. And, uh, and I still can't believe that. But, like, I'm honestly, like... <laughs> Can we like? Can I just gush about the Niners for a second in excitement? Like I, I feel like a little kid again, like at the candy store where it's like, my Niners are in the NFC Championship. Like this year, are we like tripping? Like is this two years ago? Like am I back in? Did I go back in time? Like my Niners are still in it. They're in the NFC Championship. This is freaking awesome. This is gonna be incredible. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see them in the uh, NFC Championship. Cannot wait till three thirty this Sunday. I'm gonna be nervous as all hell. But, you know, I think it, win or lose, like they're, they're playing with house money at this point. So whatever happens, happens, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. Uh, but football for me, like right now is probably the best it's ever been. And uh, I think it's surpassing the NBA in terms of the product that it's giving out. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like, I know that's kind of a hot take, but yeah, um, I do like the NBA. Don't get me wrong. Like ball is so much fun. Basketball was like my first love. Like I love watching basketball. But the NFL's product right now, like based on divisional weekend, based on week 18, based on the like these last few weeks of NFL football, excluding wildcard weekend because it was filled with a lot of blowouts. The product has been at an all time high. You cannot sit here and tell me that the NFL's product has not, you know, increased tenfold since we last discussed it uh, or since, uh, you know anybody has really talked about it. like it's this is crazy how how good the level of pro, like football there is right now um and the nba like honestly like I, I think the 82 game regular season in the nba not to like go off topic of football but the the 82 game regular season in the nba is not working out <laughs> like fans are losing interest quickly like we've played what i think the warriors are 34 and 11 and something like that um 
so it's been, you know, 45 games so far. Like we're almost halfway through the season. Yeah. This is like right around the time we're like NFL, like <laughs> this is right around the time where like, I'm usually like really tapped into the Warriors. Right. Because like, Oh, the NFL's over. The Niners are usually not making it to this point, but like now, you know, the Niners are deep in the playoffs. So, you know, I kind of got to worry about them too. And also worry about the Warriors. Um, but like NBA season is like not really in full effect, in my opinion, until after the all-star break, which is bad because that means the regular season is too long. <laughs> I think the regular season should get cut to like 60 games. I really genuinely feel like then like interest levels would be up. Every game matters exponentially way more. And you're looking at a playoff picture that's much quicker and comes faster rather than, you know, having to wait till literally April, uh, which feels like forever. But that's how I feel about uh, the NBA versus the NFL's product right now. I think the NFL is just very, you know, on another level considering um, just the way things are working out. But basketball, I mean, the fucking playoffs of basketball are like exciting as all hell. Don't get me wrong. But like the NFL is right now, right now, this year in particular has just been so good. It's been so good. And I don't want to gush over the NFL anytime longer. There's so many more freaking things we got to talk about. So here we go. To transition from the NFL, let's talk about white boy humor because that's important to me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you guys are probably wondering, like, what the fuck is white boy humor? Um, and honestly, like, I don't really know if this is a genre that a lot of people like relate to in terms of comedy, but I'm starting to notice that there's this subgenre called white boy humor, which I have named, uh, that has kind of come to life here. And it's, really headed by a couple guys. Uh, a couple guys that I think are very, very good by the names of Jimmy Tatro and Trevor Wallace. You've probably seen them on Instagram or Facebook or wherever you like look at your weird memes. Like they they have created probably, they're probably, I'd say in like the last six years responsible for like 65, 70% of Instagram memes and their various like catchphrases and YouTube videos that get cut into memes and whatnot. Um, but let's make something very clear to my Jimmy Tatro and Trevor Wallace fans. I want to I'm looking at all of you right now to the camera right now. Jimmy Tatro is the dad of Trevor Wallace in this business. I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, white boys, white girls, brown boys, whatever race you are. Jimmy Tatro birthed white boy humor and there's no questioning that. Um People like to give Trevor Wallace a lot of credit, and he does deserve a lot of credit for kind of being a part of this white boy humor. But Jimmy Tatro and Christian Pierce were the first people to really create this kind of frat humor subculture that we see right now. Uh, they really birthed this whole genre. And it's funny because Christian Pierce isn't even white. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Uh, but it is like when you like, I don't even know if Tatro and Wallace are bitter rivals. I don't even think so. I think they've worked together on like multiple videos and stuff and they seem cool in life, but it's kind of cool to like put them kind of against each other for this comparative exercise to like look at them in terms of like their comedic accomplishments and like what they've done. Cause they are of similar age. They do a lot of similar stuff. They have a very similar style. Um, because they are very similar in terms of like what they've done in terms of the, how they got to where they got to, but they're also extremely different in a lot of ways. Well, so that's very interesting. I think when it comes to Jimmy Tatro, he, he definitely has taken, I, and I'd say this like later in his career, I think he's gone from kind of that, but I think both of them started in sketch comedy. I think we like, you can look at Trevor Wallace, his YouTube channel, and then life according to Jimmy, which is also Jimmy Tatro's YouTube channel. Go check both of those out, by the way, if you haven't heard of either, they're both very freaking good. Um, but I think Jimmy Tatro kind of went from the sketch comedy sort of, you know, creating on YouTube type thing to getting right into acting, which is what a lot of YouTubers like to do, particularly comedic YouTubers. And so that's where he got into like, he got roles in 22 Jump Street and American Vandal, where like, I believe he might have been like Emmy recognized, if not like Emmy shortlisted for that performance. Um, and, you know, like he, he kind of like went in that acting direction, which is something that a lot of YouTubers do tend to do, particularly in his space. But Trevor Wallace kind of took his sketch comedy fame and following and kind of took that in a different avenue and sort of went down the stand-up path. He's actually on a stand-up tour right now, which is kind of cool. 
Um, so they've both kind of taken their careers in two different directions, but sort of birthed this foundation of white boy humor. Cause you see a lot of these TikTokers, like there's this guy, Justin, uh, who pretends to be a frat boy, like Nick, there's like this guy, uh, Nick something. And then there's like, I forget their names, but there's so many of these like frat boy TikTokers that are kind of trying to be this next Trevor Wallace, Jimmy Tatro sort of thing. Uh, and they have big followings on the app, but the reality is like none of this would have even been possible if you didn't have like Trevor Wallace and Jimmy Tatro like filming these things on like iPhone fives back in 2014. Like that's how they really started, which I think is super cool. Um, and the weird frat subgenre definitely has like a significant amount of popularity within comedy today. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. But I would say like if you let's compare like let's take it back to like Jimmy Tatro and Trevor Wallace for a second. Uh, I think if you compare the both of them just like let's take a look at humor style for a second i think trevor wallace is definitely more dirty i think when it comes to like actual like graphic humor like trevor wallace is not for the faint of heart i would say when it comes to like the way that you know he he has humor like particularly in a polite put i cannot talk politically correct society like trevor wallace is not the one guy you're gonna go to and be like oh my god i'm gonna show like my super woke like social justice supporting girlfriend like you know this like it's not you know that's not the first thing you think of tatro tatro's he doesn't really have dirty humor it's more clean I'd, I'd say jimmy tatro is more accessible to a lot of audiences i'd say trevor wallace has definitely like honed himself into kind of this college age sort of white fraternity boy um majority men audience i i mean i'm sure there are a lot of women that love trevor wallace i think he's really funny i think he's actually applicable to both uh genders but I would say like Trevor Wallace definitely has a little bit dirtier humor and Jimmy Tatro is more um, kind of family friendly in that regard. Uh, and then, I mean, dude, Life According to Jimmy and Trevor Wallace's YouTube channel, are both classic YouTube channels. They have both of them have incredible videos, which are just the most hilarious things I've ever seen. And I think like anybody would like those videos. It's not just me. It's not just, you know, guys. I think girls, guys and girls and whoever you are, like you would absolutely love those videos. Um, but I'd, I'd say like Jimmy Tatro, like really built his fame through having those iconic moments on YouTube, right? Trevor Wallace built his fame through kind of these like weird. <laughs> so like Jimmy Tatro had like live according to Jimmy and he had a couple skits that obviously like kind of went up and then, you know, he was, he became more of a recognizable face within Hollywood because he got acting roles and all this stuff. But Trevor Wallace is someone who kind of didn't have those iconic moments but he kind he started started getting recognized in like instagram memes and then there was like a couple videos that just popped off and he had a couple catchphrases which just just went viral all over the internet right you have like the zoomies video which like that was where i first saw trevor wallace and like i thought he was so funny and then like you know after the zoomies video like you had the white cloth stuff and then you know ain't no laws when you're drinking claws like the classic line um ipa time to slay right like shit like that that was all trevor wallace and those lines became sort of synonymous with him which is what led him to kind of uh reach that level of status that he's at today um but now both of them, you can consider both of them to be like very elite working kind of comedians slash actors in their various industry. And they're both very widely included, I'd say, in the world of Hollywood. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see like where they take their careers because they're getting old. They're, you know, 28, 29, 30. Um, and they're not, you know, at this point, they're going to be like seven, like eight to 10 years removed from college at a certain point. So that whole college fraternity boy act is going to have to sort of subside at some point, because it's going to be weird if a 35 year old's making fraternity boy jokes, it's not, you know, it's not going to hit the same. And so though they're, they're going to have to stop relying on that crutch of white boy humor and try to find something else. Like, I feel like they're going to have to grow up and I feel like, <sighs> comparatively if you can again we're pitting both of them for the sake of this exercise i don't necessarily know if they're anti each other in real life i don't think they are at all trevor wallace hasn't necessarily shown that maturity yet of being able to like kind of expand from beyond that sort of college level humor to more of a um mature humor but i'd say jimmy tatro has taken active steps to kind of you know ingrain himself within hollywood but not only ingrain himself within hollywood but also um sort of become more of a mature act working actor that can you know be funny in other shows like he's in 
um, I'll give you an example. Like Jimmy Tatro is in like ABC shows now. He's in this ABC, ABC show called Home Economics, which is super. Uh, it's interesting. It, I wouldn't consider it to be like Jimmy Tatro's funniest work. You know, it's not what he's necessarily known for. He gets to play kind of like this immature adult, which is like very his role. And I feel like he's going to get typecast into a lot of those roles. But he is like very. Um, it's showing a new side of Jimmy, which is kind, which is really cool. Like, and I, I really do enjoy seeing him in that new light because I think I'm going to see more of Jimmy Tatro like that. Like, it's not going to be the classic, you know, college party, you know, trying to sneak into a frat house type YouTube video, but more so like mature acting within maybe network shows or movies or whatever that may be. So that's going to be interesting. Then I think Trevor Wallace is taking steps to maturity. I'm not trying to call Trevor Wallace an immature guy. You know, I think I think Trevor Wallace is maturing in his own way. I mean, he's on a stand-up tour. Like, he's still having tremendous success. Like, they both have had a lot of success due to this genre of white boy humor. Um, and, I mean, I'm, I would like to see Trevor Wallace live. Like, I'm not even going to cap. Like, <laughs> if I got the opportunity to see Trevor Wallace live, like, I'd probably go. Um, so, we'll see. But both of them are great. Like, I want to keep emphasizing that. Like, I'm not trying to criticize Trevor Wallace or Jimmy Tatro. I'm just pointing out the fact that they are going to have to mature. Like, I don't think you can stay with this whole white boy humor act for 20, 30 years. I mean, they're funny as hell. Don't get me wrong. And they they, they could probably still pull in 16, 17 million views. But, like, Trevor Wallace can't do churdlies until he's 55. So like my, my thing is like, my interest is like, okay, so you, you've built yourself on this kind of reputation of being able to do all these funny skits, but what's the next level? And Trevor Wallace is, and I'd say Jimmy Tatro has kind of showed signs of it. And Trevor Wallace is, you know, maybe starting to get there, but it's going to be interesting to see like where they go kind of from this sort of college level humor, because they can't do it forever. And, uh, but I, I just want to say one thing about both these guys that I really admire from both of them as a fellow content creator. Look, I'm not supposed to be a com comedian. I don't come on here and make frat boy jokes and, you know, have fun. I'm not good enough to do that. They're they're super talented. Both of them are extremely funny in their own regard. They both started comedy careers from literally nothing. They started comedy careers from like GoPro, like flip camera, iPhone 4, 5, like type technology they had nothing they were broke college kids that hustled their asses off made videos off very low definition things but also told a story and had fun with their skits both of them in their own respective manner i mean life according to jimmy was one of the first youtube channels like comedic youtube channels besides maybe college humor or that type of thing to like really blow up and like make a name for itself and I mean, today it's at like 4 million subscribers. I don't know what it was back then. Like, you know, I think he reached a million back in 2014 or something like that, but he stopped regularly posting after a while to, you know, focus on his other stuff, which is fair. Um, but they really started from nothing. They just made kind of regular, like Jimmy Tatro was filming videos at the university of Arizona and Trevor Wallace was from around here. He went to college around here, San Jose state. And they both, you know, started from nothing. And it's like that. It's kind of like that band, this band aesthetic that I talked about, right? Where it's like with garage bands where you start in the garage. Like they started in the college frat house and just kind of worked their way up to becoming like Hollywood regulars at this point. Like Trevor Wallace goes on the impulsive podcast, right? Like things like that, which like they probably would have never thought were possible. And they literally built these careers up from absolutely nothing. And I think that's super cool. They have that hustler mentality and I fuck with that. And I, I'm a big fan of like that type of humor. Like I love their content and I think it just helps that I really love both their stories. I think they came from, um, pretty much, you know, just with limited resources, built themselves into like elite Hollywood names via social media and all the various things that they've done. So shout out to the both of them because I think they're doing incredible and awesome work and they deserve to be recognized for it, but also like going to be interesting to see kind of how that whole, uh, sort of genre develops uh, in the coming years. And especially as, you know, the kind of founders of it, so to speak, are getting older and older. Okay. So now that we're talking about creators, I figured we would just, you know, and white boy humor, let's kind of drift away from the comedic side of things and start to talk about creators in general, right? The life cycle of a creator. This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, and I feel like the creator industry, I mean, this is new. Everything is new creation, content creation, all of these sort of concepts are very new to everybody, right? The, the whole 
like Casey Neistat YouTuber, you know, pop culture content creating thing didn't really exist till about 15, 10 to 12 years ago, right? You started to see YouTubers like Shane Dawson and Jenna Marbles, like start to build followings through social media, but no one really knew what to do and how to capitalize it on it and any of this stuff. But now we live in a society here in 2022 where it seems like everybody's got their own social media account and they're sort of starting to build or and people are sort of starting to realize the advantages of building a business via social media in that you gain a lot of like brand following and, you know, people will buy your stuff and as a result, make you more money and all these things. So I feel like the creator industry is becoming something that everybody is sort of being a part of and it's being built up for the first time. It's like we're Silicon Valley was like that industry in the 1980s and the 1990s that was being formed, right? Where you were like building from the ground up. And I feel like this is content creating is that way right now. Like we are in an era where social media content creation is being built up from the ground up. Like we are building the foundations for that industry. Um, and this is something that's completely new and it's foreign to everybody. And, you know, with the additions of new technology every day, new social media apps, like you have the opportunity to really get solid engagement and build a following, like which is crazy. You never have, people have never had this, like as much opportunity and as much, like potential to gain followings than as they do right now. But there's a cycle, there's a cycle that I've kind of started to notice that it's taken place. And the little trends that I've started to notice with creators that have really started to take shape, not really, but also just like little things that I've noticed with the various creators that I've followed through the years and sort of the trends that they have followed um, and what I've kind of noticed as the commonality between uh, and the common threads between uh, the various creators that I do follow. So the first thing I've really noticed in the terms of the life cycle of a creator is that there's a lot of different ways to kind of get to the top. Uh, and what I mean by the top is like, you know, you have at that point, like I don't consider the top to be a specific finite number, right? Like a million subscribers on YouTube, although that is a very big accomplishment. And I do happen to know quite a few creators who are not like personally, but like I do happen to follow quite a few creators who have a million subscribers on YouTube, right? And do they consider uh, a million plus, but do they consider that to be like the top? No, because once you get to a million, I'm sure you want to get to two, three, so on and so forth. It's kind of the way it works. But what I've noticed is that to get to the top, you have to have a couple of things, uh, whatever the top may be, right? 500K, 40K, whatever. You have to get, you, there's a couple things that you have to do. So the first thing is that you have to constantly be relevant. You cannot stop in that like you have to constantly be releasing kind of fresh takes or sort of um, different perspectives all the time. You can't just like take breaks for months on end and then drop like one video here and there. Like there's no Kanye Frank Ocean approach when it comes to content creating. You have to constantly be relevant because there's like over 500. I heard somewhere there's like over 500 hours of video being uploaded to YouTube an hour. So considering that, that's your competition. You have 500 hours of content that's being uploaded per hour. And so if you like spend your time and take your time on your travel vlogs or whatever it is, like you're going to go out of style and irrelevant like that. You can't do that anymore. You, what you have to do is you have to come up with quick stuff all the time. I don't necessarily think that the aesthetic is the biggest issue, which is why I put out videos on TikTok that look like shit sometimes. I will be the first one to admit it. Uh, also, I I don't know why. It looks good when I edit it, and then I put it on TikTok, and it's like all grainy and shit. I'm trying to work on that, okay? I apologize. I'm sorry. We'll figure something out, okay? I promise. Soon. But you have to really look and back to what I was saying, you have to really look at like different perspectives and you have to find a way to keep it fresh. You can't provide the same like boilerplate stuff all the time. Cause if you do that, people are going to look at you and just be like, why don't I just go to this guy who has 300 K followers? Who's giving me that same level of content, but you have to give him a different angle, which is why I think like podcasting is so cool. And I think I live in a time where I can provide those angles because I'm someone who likes to look at things from a different angle from outside the box and stuff like that. So I feel like I fit into that uh, at a, at a really uh, nice pace, but, but, uh, but there's more. Um, I think though, like you developing a following is obviously the thread here. That's the key thing that everybody is trying to do, right? You have to start kind of small. I started from nothing. I had no followers on my account. 
And the first followers crept in and they were my friends and they were my family, right? And those were the first people that follow you. And then eventually like maybe a friend of a friend follows you or maybe like someone on TikTok recognizes you and they follow you there and then they follow you on your IG. And then it develops and it kind of, you know, sort of snowballs. Um, And then you, you know, you can develop a following like that very slowly. But then there's also, there's usually what I've noticed as a common thread for all creators, there's a breaking point video or there's a breaking point piece of content that usually gets you over the top and puts you on people's radar. It's happened all the time. I've seen it with various people. I've seen it in the sports space. I've seen it in the um, fucking entertainment space. I've seen it in the YouTube space. Uh, When it comes to Yes Theory, there was a video that they did uh, titled, what was it? There was uh, the videos with Will Smith. Uh, for Yes Theory is a good example of like how they really got on the national media's map. The Justin Bieber video for them was huge, right? Um, You want to talk about uh, different creators like Joe Rogan probably had a couple clips of his podcast that just kind of broke. Alex Cooper and Call Her Daddy, the Gluck Gluck 9000 clip, which went fucking viral. Those are the ones, those are called the breaking points, in my opinion. Those are the breaking points that really tip you over the edge, that take you from kind of this middle of the pack creator to sort of someone who can kind of distance themselves with a big following. Those are the clips that can really just fucking boom. But it doesn't happen to everyone immediately. And breaking points can be at a variety of different extremes, like within a certain community, like it can be big, like, you know, within Brown TikTok, or it can be big within um, fucking uh, the crew, like content creators or whatever. Right. But as long as you're kind of like, kind of breaking out and the engagement like has a significant increase, like, yeah, that's your breaking point. I have not reached a breaking point yet. I will try and recognize when I've reached a breaking point. I think I've reached many breaking points. Like I've had videos with like 12, 13, 14 different comments of people like engaging with me and like having a conversation about the various takes that I have, but nothing crazy like that yet. Um, I don't know if I'll get there in a year or five years. We'll see what happens, but you know, that's further down the line. I also don't care to get that viral fame, right? There's so many people who get the viral fame and they're not ready for it. I feel like if you if you break out all of a sudden and you get all of this fame, you can do one of two things. You can either A, handle it correctly and have a perfectly planned, like have a really good rollout and like have content that's like ready to go. That's like boom, 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 like ready to follow it up. And, you know, suddenly, you know, you can build that build on that viral fame or B, you can use that viral fame and it, you know, it, you get a mass amount of clout for like a month. And then suddenly all of those fo- all of those followers, all of that engagement everything disappears and then you just turn into a normal human being again. I don't want to get that viral fan because I don't think I'm ready for it right now. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, but I mean, take a look at the guy number seven on TikTok. For those of you that don't know, there's this guy number seven, Caden Woodall on TikTok. He's like, he was like a high school senior in like Michigan. And he and his friends like decided to like, kick it one day, I guess, and like film a TikTok of them lip singing. And, you know, to TikTok teenage girls, like they were, you know, relatively attractive white kids and they put out their TikTok and it was, it was a hit. It got like nine, 10, 15 million views or some shit, like a lot of likes, like crazy amount of following, just like, you know, Caden Woodall went from like kid from the suburbs of Michigan to like the most famous man in the world on TikTok for like three weeks. But the thing is with Caden is he had no idea how to handle it. He had no idea how to handle that clout because he went like he was the shit. He had every single like he had the Detroit Lions. He did a whole special with them and all of that stuff. But he was popular for about two and a half weeks. And then like the whole thing kind of went down the drain because that's the media cycle we live in. So there's you have to like I feel like with a lot of TikTok trends and all of this stuff, like you have to be able to capitalize on that trend and then build off of it and then find something and then like have your stuff ready to go. You have to have a plan in case you're ready and in case you go viral. And luckily, like I haven't had that issue yet. I have not gone viral. Um, so I don't have like a plan, but if I were to go as viral as number seven, I don't know what the hell I would do. I don't know what I would do with myself. Like I, I would probably shit my pants first <laughs> and then like, you know, I'd be like, oh my God, I have so much content to create because holy fuck, I am not ready for this moment. 
And I mean, you look at other people like who have gone viral, like you look at some of the best comedians in the world, like Hasan Minaj, like when he went viral at the White House Correspondents Dinner, he was ready for that shit because he had been working on his comedy for 10, 11 years. So he had material, he was experienced in the field, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so he was ready to go, um, you know, kind of build off that virality, so, so to speak, with the mainstream. Um, who's another guy? Uh, my... There's a guy, Grant Cohn. I interviewed him, um, and he had an interview this summer with uh, the 49ers starting safety, Jimmy Ward, and a couple of those quotes got picked up by Bleacher Report, and they went to NFL Network, which is like the biggest national media outlet for the NFL, and it's uh, available in like every single NFL facility and all of this stuff, and he knew how to like build off of that kind of little bit of virality and that like you know he had a bunch of content and he was experienced in the space and you know he was a journalist that had worked in the field for a long time so there was that sort of sense of um i know what i'm doing but i i mean i don't really have that plan i haven't been, i've been podcasting for a year like if i were to go viral on a tiktok clip like i don't know how i'd build off of that like i would be like okay like i have that but now what's next so that would be like my biggest concern um, but it's an interesting thing to like ponder because it is like the, the whole life cycle of a creator is just very interesting and fascinating because I, I mean, I honestly like say this, like I would rather have little bits of clout. Like if I get a little comment here, like a little bit of engagement there and a little bit of engagement there, I'd prefer that over like, oh my God, one video got 30 million views on TikTok. I'm, of course I'd love that. Like, I'm not trying to like say like, oh my God, like I wouldn't love clout, but like one video gets 30 million views on TikTok. Like, I don't know how I'm going to fucking follow that up. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know. I just want like a community of people that are going to appreciate my stuff and not just like followers for that one piece of content that maybe went off. Right. So that's like the thing that I am trying to figure out is like building a community of people who appreciate me. But at the same time, like uh, I don't want to just <laughs> give opinions and build an echo chamber here. Right. I want to build a good conversation and something that like actually is worthwhile rather than, you know, what we have now. Okay. So I have a few more topics. Let's get into it. Let's transition from kind of the life cycle of a creator and sort of go back to the realm of comedy for a second because I think there's something we got to talk about. Political comedy, bro. Okay, this is kind of relates to the news, but also doesn't because, you know, political politics. <gasps> we talk about politics on this show. I, I feel like I'm a relatively well-versed 21-year-old when it comes to his politics. Listen. I think The Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, all of these late night shows have really slipped the last year. I think they've slipped. Hold on one second. But Anuj, what do you mean by slipped? Good question. Let me explain this. Donald Trump was elected president way back in 2016. Of course, everybody knows that. When Trump was elected president, all of a sudden, The Daily Show, SNL, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon started to become the, some of the most amongst some of the most popular shows on television. They became like the shit. They were political comedy. Donald Trump was our president. Ha ha ha. Everything is so funny. The jokes were practically being written based on the fact that Trump would say outlandish stuff every day. And the writers would just have to write that stuff down and write a funny reaction quote to that and suddenly that thing had 6.5 million views in a matter of three hours because everybody hated donald trump particularly in the kind of left echo chamber that late night tv exists in but now we have a democratic president in office joe biden and a democratic vice president and democratic control of the senate and democratic control of the house and suddenly those same people who were you know constantly berating Donald Trump, berating Mike Pence, berating Republican officials. I'm not defending Republicans by any means, but these are the same people who were berating them on late night TV are now silent. There's no jokes about Joe Biden. I don't see any clips going viral about making fun of his decisions in Afghanistan or the various things that he's doing. Um, you know why? Because Let's face it, most of late night TV, most of the TV that we see, the media, uh, when it comes to political comedy and satire is very much based in the left. It's very much uh, left leaning bias. And so they make fun of a lot of conservatives. And this was a thought that I had in my head. It was circulating, it was circulating. And I was like, finally, like, okay, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do some research. So I'm going to share my research in a second. But dude, 
here's the thing. I, I've noticed this particularly with The Daily Show because they're really focused in political comedy. I feel like SNL kind of has that out with political comedy because they focus on America as a whole. So they can kind of, you know, get out of it by making fun of celebrities and various other pop culture trends and inside stuff like that. But as, but, but like the daily show has no excuse. They, they are built to, for political satire. John Stewart, the political satire legend uh, made fun of every president, regardless of political affiliation for 25 years. And then he retired. Right. And he left it on top. And there's a reason why The Daily Show has struggled. Trevor Noah kept his job at The Daily Show for one reason and one reason only, and that's Donald Trump. Hottest take of the year. Trevor Noah is really literally employed because of a man by the name of Donald J. Trump. And he's the guy that he would make fun of on a daily basis, and Trevor Noah was employed because of him. Um, the Daily Show ratings since Jon Stewart left have dropped 37 to 40% year over year. That is a crazy drop. And listen, I'm not supposed to be, I'm not going to be someone who's like, oh yeah, they drop because Trevor sucks. No, Jon Stewart was a fucking legend. Okay. Like people on like Republicans watched him. Democrats watched him. Moderates watched him. He was great. He was, Jon Stewart is a legend in comedy and in political satire. And there's nothing you can say that is going to make me believe otherwise. He is so good. And so, yes, you have to expect a pretty steep drop when you bring in a new host, particularly from South Africa, that no one really know, knew at the time on the mainstream level in Trevor Noah. But you bring in Trevor Noah, and it's been two years, three years, and the ratings still continue to drop, and they still continue to be at a negative like this. Yeah, sure, the first year, yeah, you can give them a pass. First two years even. But even during the Trump presidency, the ratings were down constantly. Can we please face the simple reality? And I have faced this reality before. I don't think Trevor Noah's that funny. I don't think Trevor Noah's that good, and I think he's one of the more overrated comedians that we have today. I mean, okay, look. I give him the benefit of the doubt. He took over after Jon Stewart and he did a decent job for about a year when President Trump was in office, right? When Donald Trump was in office. Then he did a pretty okay job, you know, had a few clips go viral here and there and he was good with that. But since then, Noah has struggled. Trevor Noah has struggled to replace uh, Jon Stewart. There is no ifs, ands, or doubts about it. He has struggled. And I don't know what Comedy Central is doing, continuing to keep him. They had him in his apartment for hella long. Now they have him in the studio. There's like no studio audience. It's not funny. It's just tremendously like, it's just a very like, it just feels, it's just very weird. It's very weird. Trevor Noah is just not funny anymore. It's, it's he was, I don't even think he was that funny before. I'm not saying Trevor Noah's not talented. Trevor Noah's extremely talented. Okay, don't get me wrong. He's very talented in other areas. He's wrote, he's written this beautiful book about his life. It's called Born a Crime. I highly recommend if you haven't read it. Um, it's supposed to be turned into a movie. Apparently, there's a, a, a audio book that also goes along with it, and I've heard is incredible. Um, and I've read the physical book. It's a really, really good book. You should definitely, definitely read Born a Crime. It is so good. Um, and he's a great writer and I'm sure, and he's really great at explaining things. Like I've seen him in interviews and in podcasts and he's very well-spoken in other areas. So I can see why they gave him the hosting gig, but he's not that funny anymore. But like, honestly though, like, why is he still, like, why is he still with the Daily Show? But that's not the point. Okay. Why can't conservatives though make liberal satire? Is that not a thing? Can we not have that in society? Is that just something that's not widely accepted? Apparently not. Because the, the left gets to make fun of the right, but the right never gets to make fun of the left, particularly in a mainstream sort of context. I know there's like one kind of sort of Daily Show-esque type thing on Fox News, but Fox News has taken such a bad L and rap over the last, whatever it is, four and a half years that nobody gives a shit. No one's going to go to Fox News and turn on conservative satire, particularly if you're on the left, because you're just going to think, oh, it's Fox News. It's filled with fake news because that's the society we live in. We need to find like, I don't know if there's a way to like sort of combine the liberal and the conservative and find like a middle ground. I don't know if we can find that now, but, you know, it would be interesting to have that. But, you know, that's the society we live in. 
But there is material. Like he, the thing is, like none of these late night show hosts. I feel like the writers are lazy, and like I, I don't like saying that because like they, they obviously are hardworking people, and they have to put together shows every day and Daily Show and SNL and all this stuff. But like, dude, the jokes were right in front of them for Donald Trump. Everything was right there for Joe Biden. Like it's there too. This dude is an idiot. Like I'm sure. Like okay, I don't mean to say that Biden's an idiot, but like. He's just not, like, the most, like, he's kind of a fool, okay? Him and Kamala Harris both, they're a little wacky in their own ways. Like, you can definitely find ways to poke fun at them for a TV audience. Like, that's kind of funny, okay? But they don't do it. And actually, there's evidence to do this. I was reading about this article. I read a few articles this morning about how late-night TV kind of refuses to attack sort of the Democratic administration. Um, and... Here's a quote uh, kind of from that Harvard article. I'm quoting articles now. Jesus Christ. Um, but it says Fallon and Colbert told twice as many jokes about Trump than Biden, according to Farnsworth and Lichter's analysis. And even when the late night comics are not uh, excoriating Trump himself, Trumpian figures, including Majority Taylor Greene, who we've talked about, and Matt Gates, who have who even had a recurring segment on the late show titled Gates Gate. And it faced a barrage from late night. So it's clear, okay? Late night is obviously just trending towards finding very conservative figures that they can make fun of. But they'd refuse to make fun of the, the guy who's the president of the United States that's basically done absolutely nothing. Um, I think that's the funniest part, is Joe Biden has done nothing. You can make so much fun of that, right? Like he had this huge grand plan for his agenda, but he's accomplished none of it, to be honest. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, and I I think, like, honestly, why we don't see more of, like, a, a, a moderate bias on late night and on The Daily Show and how it seems to be so highly politicized, even when it comes to, like, political satire and the humor, is because the, the writers are liberal, okay? The comics are liberal. And it's not their fault. It's because, like, I mean, is it their fault? Not really. I mean, they got hired by the show. Like, I feel like the shows are just hiring liberal people because I guess mainstream media and Hollywood itself tends to naturally be more progressive. I would like to see more conservative comedies out there. I personally would approve of that. There's this show called the There was a show called The Middle on uh what was it, ABC or something. ABC ran for like seven, eight seasons. And it wasn't like a political show. It's a sitcom. It's about a family who lives in middle-class America who works blue-collar jobs. And I think it's fucking hilarious. I think it's so funny. I think it's that type of representation that maybe is lacking in media. And I'm, I'm like, I know people are going to be like, you're saying there's white people that lack representation? What the fuck is wrong with you? No. What I'm trying to say... Sorry. What I'm trying to say is that I feel like there needs to be more representation of conservative or, or being conservative of being, you know, whether it be socially conservative, whether it be economically conservative, whatever that may be. I think there needs to be more conservatives in the media and there needs to be more jokes dedicated to that conservative kind of group of people. I'm not saying, and you can't just sit here and tell me like, you can't be like the counter argument to that is like, Oh, um, conservative jokes are just like, uh, making fun of like basic human rights. No dude like there's there's it's just so much i feel like there's more nuanced humor maybe with joe biden the humor isn't as obvious you just have to go looking for it but i think that should be the job of these comics that's why you get paid you know the big bucks to write for these shows it's to make it funny and it's to find the jokes that no one else will but i mean that leads to like a whole thing of like do these networks censor and all this stuff but whatever that's a whole separate conversation Another piece of evidence. Um, I mean, I would just like to balance the scales a little bit. Let's put in some more conservative comedians in the in the writers' room, right? Come on. Harvard says, and I think this was an interesting thing. And the Harvard article that I was reading kind of said this. They said conservatism at heart involves respect for governmental institution, whereas the left kind of is more associated with destroying systems, which is fair. Okay, I guess like conservatism definitely does have more respect for governmental officials and all, and like the process and the structure, which is ironic because Donald Trump had zero respect for anything when he was, you know, part of the Republican Party. But I think there is there you can find a balance is my point with with humor, particularly in late night and all of that stuff. I think there is a there is a way that you can find a compromise between 
to uh, between the two sides and and include jokes that are kind of appropriate for both sides of the political aisle instead of politically polarizing your shows to being more left oriented or, you know, so on or so forth. But I think that's just a partisan society we live in, unfortunately. And even comedy has to be fucking political these days. Jesus. I feel like John's like, that's what I liked about Stewart is he attacked both sides. It wasn't just the left. It wasn't just the right. He would shit on the left too. Like he, he did a great job of political satire during the Obama administration. Like his ratings didn't go down. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's all there. It's statistics. Um, but I can tell you this. I think Colbert and Myers and Kimmel and Trevor Noah are secretly hoping, secretly hoping that Donald Trump runs again in 2024 because they just have the man to write all their jokes for them. They don't have to do any work. Oh, they're like, oh, okay, writers, just write a joke and we'll just funnily react to it. Everybody, all, late night TV is hoping and praying that Donald Trump runs in 2024 so that they can just, you know, have their humor written for them. I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that's my theory about all this. His outlandish nature, Donald Trump just being out of pocket, as the kids say these days, will just write the story itself. But that's the truth that no one wants to say in late night TV. Late night TV is just everybody in late night wants Donald Trump uh, to run again. Not to win, but to run again, because then they can just make fun of him endlessly. And that's what Hollywood really wants. But let's transition from Hollywood and Trump and all of these figures to a very more rational topic that I really want to touch on very quickly. Stephen Breyer is retiring. You're like, who the fuck is Stephen Breyer? And Let me explain to plebeians something very quickly. Okay. Stephen Breyer is a Supreme Court justice. Okay. And he serves, obviously, no shit, Anuj, on the Supreme Court. Okay. So he's retiring from his lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Why is this significant? Who the hell is Stephen Breyer? Stephen Breyer was, uh, well, basically was appointed as a Supreme Court justice by Bill Clinton way back in the 1990s, I believe in 1992, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he's been known as, and he's kind of a throwback justice for the liberals, and I liked him a lot, particularly because of the fact I liked him personally because he's a moderate liberal. He's kind of like that, again, Bill Clinton era Democrat where it was like, I'm not, I, you know, you're not AOC. You're not super center. Uh, you're not super like, you know, progressively left, but you're also not um, Donald Trump and like on the right. Like you're just kind of like in the middle, but you lean kind of left on some social issues and you lean right kind of economically. And that's sort of what Stephen Breyer is uh, in terms of his political affiliations from what we can tell based on his dissents and interviews and stuff like that. He's part of this liberal sort of trifecta of the court. It was him, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Um, and the idea, and the thing is like the thing that everybody's worried about is will the court get more conservative? And the answer is no, because Joe Biden is in office, Stephen Breyer is retiring. And so the presumed thing is as a result uh, there's going to be a, another liberal justice that's basically replacing Breyer. So it'll just continue to have that 6-3 margin. And so the ideological trajectory of the court will still remain conservative, but it's not going to become even more conservative, if that makes sense. The Democrats, though, have kind of an ulterior, advantage, uh, ulterior motive here because their goal is to get the successor sworn in as soon as possible. Because there is going to be people who are... Um, at, so basically the Democrats have a super narrow, um, advantage in the Senate. It's like one seat. That's it. So it's super small and they are trying. And, and basically the midterm elections are coming up in November of 2022. So they're trying to rush this appointment as fast as possible through the Senate, through the house or sorry, through the Senate to make sure that they can, you know, even if all the Republicans say no, to make sure that, you know, Biden's appointment is appointed and, you know, you have that six, three advantage. And then it still remains 6-3 and it doesn't become 7-2 or anything crazy. They're trying to make sure this appointment just moves through the Senate very smoothly. And it's unlikely that Mitch McConnell can really do anything because the Democrats have an advantage in the Senate, even though it may be a minute one. But the Democrats are really trying to rush. They're trying to go really quickly um, because of the fact that the 22 midter 2022 midterms are coming up. Um, so Joe Biden and Stephen Breyer together are officially going to announce that retirement, their re his retirement on Thursday, uh, which is today actually coincidentally i'm just recording this at night so by the time this podcast comes out you will have seen the press conference or whatever if you guys are interested in that so he would have theoretically announced it by the time of this podcast 
Um, but again, like I said, uh, senators want to move quick. That margin is small and they want to pounce. So that's why like you have Chuck Schumer coming out of the press today. Who, and he's like, yeah, we're moving quickly. We need the, you know, we want the nominee list. Now we're going to move her through the Senate, through the hearings, get her, get everything done. Check. Good to go. So who is going to be the justice? That's what probably everybody is worried about. Apparently Joe Biden has been on the record and he's been saying he's going to nominate a black woman to the bench. So that would be a first, I believe. Yes, that would be a first for the Supreme Court, a black woman. Um, and Jen Paskey, I believe that's how you say her name, White House Press Secretary, my girl, Jen, uh, made it very clear to her comments with the press today that Joe Biden intends to do that. Will he actually do it? Yet to be seen, but most likely, yes. See, they're going out on a limb and saying that. Um, but Breyer is going to probably serve out the remainder of his term, most likely, which is the next couple months. Uh, so finish up all the rest of the cases that the Supreme Court is supposed to hear here uh, shortly. And there's a few possibilities of some of the black women that uh, black women judges that Joe Biden has picked out. There's a few that are looking like very likely candidates, um, uh, but nothing is in concrete. A couple of those women include uh, Ken, Kintaji Brown and Leandra Kruger. Uh, I'm sorry if I mispronounced those names, but they're both potential candidates to watch for. Uh, both of them have Ivy League law degrees, incredible legal credentials. Um, Leandra Kruger actually ran the city circuit court here in San Francisco. Um, the Ninth Circuit Court, I believe is what it's called. Um, so she was a judge there. Very well respected. Have, a, have done a lot of good work um, through, uh, have done a lot of good work legally and also uh I believe both of them are liberal justices in uh, liberal states. So it makes sense. Um, they're also quick thing to point out very quickly. They're both very young, 51 and 45 respectively. And they, and like I said, Ivy league law, uh, it's sad. I'm, I'm sad that Breyer is retiring uh, because he was my type of justice uh, in that he was a very, he was kind of like he would ramble like I do. He was very like well-versed in history and art and culture and kind of um, went on rambles when he would question <laughs> the, the various subjects in his court. Uh, he was moderate, like I said, but his ultimate uh, sort of truth was fairness. And that's all that he wanted was to be fair. And I, I respect that. That is very much a virtue that I hold true to my heart as well. Um, they said, again, he was very lively and colorful as well as open-minded, which is something that is very rare. And he's from the Bay Area, from born and raised in San Francisco. So shout out to my boy, Stephen Breyer. Um, a lot of people, progressive activists in particular, were like calling for him to retire, uh, particularly uh, after RBG died, because you know they wanted to kind of solidify um, their, uh, the, just make sure that the court didn't get too conservative. But he's been on the record, and he said multiple times, like the court does not believe in politics, uh, or like sorry, the court does not believe in politics, but like the court isn't politically involved in that like the court is doing what's best for the law and they have open discussions regardless of their beliefs personally on these issues to make sure that they're having um, and, and to make sure that they're having an open discourse that maintains law and order in the country. And I think that's honestly true. I think the Supreme Court is one of the last governmental institutions to not be untouched by politics, which is incredibly beautiful. And I think it should be maintained like that. The court is really the last place where bipartisanship is accepted. You have, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia were best friends in the whole entire world. And Antonin Scalia was one of the most conservative justices on the court. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an incredibly liberal, was an incredibly liberal human being. Like she was the one of the first, as you guys know, one of the first female justices on the court and did a lot of great work um, as a Supreme Court justice. And was kind of the sort of vocal advocate for a lot of policies. Um, and like I said, uh, Breyer was one of the last people to really embrace that attitude that politics shouldn't be brought into the court and that everybody should kind of be open-minded to every idea. He's from that Clinton era where America was actually open to sort of educated embrace debate where you could have that. Uh, have political debate, but also have a fundamental respect for each other as human beings and moderates could exist. So Stephen Breyer will be missed by a few, I think me being one of them. So yeah, uh, going to miss you, Breyer. Uh, Justice Breyer, if you're listening to this, thank you for serving on the court.
appreciate it. But uh, it's going to be, again, uh, probably a black woman appointed to the bench. You're going to see a lot of Instagram posts about it. For those of you who are Gen Z and social media, you're going to be like, oh, my God, first black woman justice appointed. You heard it here first. Telling you right now, it's probably going to happen. So, yeah, that's what I have to say about Stephen Breyer and and that whole headline. And that's going to kind of develop as we move on. It, the news just dropped like a few hours ago. So I just wanted to talk about that on the show. And the last thing I want to mention very quickly before we wrap it up, we're at an hour and three minutes, education and accessibility. Listen, I was thinking about this in class today. My professor was discussing our textbook and I was looking at our textbook and I was like, wow, this is incredibly hard to read. And then I was like, wait, shouldn't textbooks be like a resource for college kids? Not like an incredibly hard piece of information to decode. Why are these so hard to read? Why do textbooks use such educated language with people who often don't have uh, like a lot? There's a good portion of college kids that went to high schools where, you know, it wasn't like they, they came from they came from low income neighborhoods where they didn't have the resources to like have SAT vocab words or any of this shit. Like they barely like it's just like their colleges has college and like me being in community college, particularly you have like such a wide level of like learning abilities, right? You have a wide level of like levels of where people are at. Like some people are like old, like some people are like very high advanced, like come from a neighborhood that like I did and had the blessings of having all these resources in front of them and did all this stuff. And then you have other people who are like, yeah, I barely passed high school um, because I had to work two full-time jobs. And now I'm in college and I'm trying to learn something, but I have to read through this dense textbook where I have to look up every other fucking word. It doesn't make sense. Shouldn't textbooks be written in kind of the everyday language so that every kid should be able to understand it, right? And like, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, no, I think so. I think so. But I don't think college publishers think so. Like, I think you are like, oh, you're in college, so you have to have some level of educated knowledge. And like, again, I'm so blessed. I went to some of the top public schools in the country and I lived in a neighborhood that I did. Like I didn't, you know, have to worry about working or like putting food on the table or any of that stuff. And that's a privilege um, in so many ways. But there are kids out there that are going into college that have no idea, like whose reading level is quite frankly below the grade level. And they can't understand half the shit that you're saying. Like I can barely understand some of the passages that are written in these college textbooks. It's hard. So why is that there? Shouldn't education be accessible to everybody? I don't, I, I don't understand. It's something that perplexes me. I feel like a lot of kids don't know a lot of these complicated terminologies and semantics and all of these things. And it should be, I feel like college textbooks should be written in a more approachable manner rather than something that's very difficult to, um, you know, understand. I, I, I feel like there's got to be a balance here. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I feel like the accessibility to education should be a right, but also you college freaking textbooks should not be written in language that's incredibly difficult for like even someone like myself who went to one of the top public schools in the country to understand, right? Let alone someone who, you know, um, was in a much less privileged situation than I was, right? What, like, it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I feel like, does anybody have any thoughts on this point of view? Like, I feel like, educate like when it comes to like accessibility of textbooks and like actually like writing textbooks they should be written in a much more approachable manner um and written in kind of everyday language so that everybody can learn the information and has access to that same type of those same type of concepts that maybe you should too and i'm not just talking like in um like obviously when it comes to like advanced level courses like your junior your senior year yeah you can write it in a little bit more advanced terminology but like i'm talking like particularly like intro to sociology classes or like even like you know, communicate some of the early communication classes. Like there, there's still a lot of hard shit in those textbooks that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like let's let's make textbooks more approachable. I don't know. Maybe then your education will improve. But then again, I don't believe in the college education system. Okay, we're getting off topic. That doesn't make any sense. But that's it. That's the end of my show. Changavi Show 21 in the books. If you guys like this show and you're on YouTube, feel free to like and subscribe. If you're on Spotify, go ahead and hit the follow button. Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave me a five-star review. If you liked it, if you hated it, give me a one-star review. Tell me exactly why. Um, but anyway, that's all I got. Uh, 
Thank you so, so much for listening. That's an hour and eight minutes. I know it was a little long today, but we had a lot to get through and a lot of dense topics. So that's all I got. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate every single one of you. This is Anuj Chingabi signing off from his parents' house, episode 21 of the Chingabi Show in the books. All right, I'll see y'all later. Thank you guys for listening. Appreciate all of you. Peace. Thank you.